Hi. Hi. Well, it's good to see you. Wow, people. Uh, first thing, I have to apologize. I, for some reason, uh, a little bit of allergies caught me, and so I got this little niggle in my throat, so I apologize if I have to stop in the middle and take a big swig of water, but you'll understand. Um, you know, I've spent the last number of uh, months preaching outside. So where I'm, where I'm from, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, we, we have some rules in place uh, that are, uh, well, many would call them draconian, including me, but the, the rules are that you cannot gather together in, a, in an indoor space with more than 50 people. Actually, you can't even gather in your house with people, not in your family. But when you go to church, you can do church, but the only way you can do church is you can do it outside. Now, you know, I hope you know that in Vancouver, it rains a little bit. So uh, we've had to put up tents, right? So big tents. But we want to make sure that we're able to get as many people as we can. You're only supposed to have 50, but we've, you know, consulted with some of the bylaw officers, and they've put, uh, we've put a tent here, and a, a tent here, a tent here, and a tent here. The sides are white tarp. So when the wind blows during the sermon, it goes, and behind me is a drive-in with like 50 cars. So they get this view the whole time, which, no, it's not woo. I block out the sun. I know that. Uh, so I'm used to turning in a circle, preaching like this the whole time. I get dizzy after a while. But that's what we've been having to do. And so, um, to be honest with you, I have been so itching to come here, not only because I'm really, really excited about the journey that we are going to take together by God's grace in the days ahead, but also because I don't have to look behind me. And you're here, and I'm here, and I'm so happy about it. It's fantastic, right? Um, I have had people ask me, though, the question, why... Are, why are you doing church like that? Uh, and I, <laughs> a lot of churches in our area are, are, aren't doing it. And uh, we've gone to every length to make sure that we have services, to make sure that we can do whatever. I preach uh, six times a weekend. I have been doing six times a weekend. In fact, at one point it was going on a Sunday morning from, I had a nine o'clock and a 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. So I was running between locations. And um, people were asking, why is it that you're doing it this way? And um, the, the answer, okay, is because I believe that the local church is one of God's ordained means to keep people in the faith. Amen. So, that line assumes something big. And the thing that it assumes is that some people don't stay in the faith. Now, in theological terms, if you're from uh, a churchy background, uh, you might have heard the term apostasy. That's the theological term for somebody who starts believing in Jesus. You know, they get baptized, go for a little while, and then they fade away for various reasons. They decide that they're no longer going to worship Christ. When I, when I close my eyes, I can picture the faces of so many people in my life where that's been the case with them. You, you can too. Listen, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that. You, they're people you know. They're family members you know. And the, and the question, quite honestly, that plagues many of us is what happens with somebody like that? 
Like, what, what do we say about their eternal destiny? What does the Bible say about their eternal destiny? I teach a class, in fact, on this subject. It's called a, a class on perseverance and the necessity to continue in the faith until your dying day. And I just go through the entire Bible with all of the different passages that emphasize this point. Guys, uh, it is seven weeks of just Bible verses. That's how many of these verses there are in Scripture warning people like you and me about the dangers of apostasy. So here's what I want to do. I want to take the next few minutes and I want to share with you one of my very favorite passages of Scripture that I think is the central passage that deals with this question in the Bible. The whole book of Hebrews deals with it. And in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.14, it says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if you want the shorthand, and now you can go to sleep, there it is. Okay, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. But I want to spend some time looking at the words of Jesus about when he told a parable about farming. It's in Luke chapter 8. Uh, verses 4 to 15. And uh, the reason I brought it, and you're like, well, why would you pick a sermon like this to talk the first time you come? This, uh, this passage has had a huge influence in the way that I understand my ministry. Like, what is it that you are supposed to be doing, pastor, with the people God has called you to serve and love? My short answer is, I want to see you die and live. Do you like the pause at that point? I want to see you die. There are many people I would like to see die. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> I want to see you die, and I want to see you live happy in Jesus. So here's what I want to do in the next few minutes. Uh, I, I want to first look at this parable. It's a parable of the four soils, and then I want to explain the parable of the four soils. To be honest, it's really helpful. You, sometimes you're like, oh, I wish Jesus were here to explain this parable for me. Well, he does here. So we'll follow his explanation. So here's the first part of that. Here, just look at the parable itself. We're going to walk through it for, for just a second. Verse 4 of Luke chapter 8. Uh, and when a great crowd was gathering and, and people from town to town came to him, he said in a parable. Okay, let's pause there. So he's going from town to town. Jesus is actually, if you wanted to, to put like a subtitle on the ministry of Jesus, it, it would have been, you know, the ministry of Jesus, colon, crowded. There's lots and lots of people. And of course, you understand that. Listen, if somebody were down the way here and they were, you know, healing people and giving sight to the blind and casting out demons of people, like honestly, you would be over there too. Probably like, mm, let's have a look. So Jesus is going from town to town and, and he's adding to the number each time, the number of people who are, who are coming along. They're probably coming to some degree to see, to see the show, uh, but it's not easy, guys, it's not easy to go from your home in uh, you know, first century Palestine out to the middle of nowhere from your town and just keep following this guy along. There's a lot of practical challenges in this. I mean, one of them is where are we gonna eat? Where are you going to sleep? What kinds of stuff are you going to go home each day? But some people are coming from town to town. In fact, in this particular passage, in the other Gospels, Jesus is so crowded that he has to get in a boat and set off from the shore a little bit so he can teach the people. They're pushing him into the lake. So who's there? 
I mean, what kind of people are there? Well, they have to be people who are not just gen- generally interested, but pre- pretty interested, pretty committed type of people, people who uh, are willing to sacrifice some stuff in order to be around him, to hear what it is that he has to say. They're engaged. And that's just your run-of-the-mill person who's like, uh, I think I'll go out for the day, and oh, there's a guy over there in the park casting demons out of people. That's not that, that, that guy. It's the person who's genuinely committed Maybe not completely yet. They're still kind of putting their feet in the water, but genuinely committed. So what kind of people are here? How many what kind of people are online? You guys online do know that it's a Sunday morning. You have other things you could do right now, right? Some people right now are like, I do? I'm going golfing. You guys know that too, right? It's a, sun, it's a Sunday morning. You, you could be out riding your bike. You could be out doing a whole lot of other things, and yet you're here. Here you are. I would call you genuinely committed people. Like I just sat here for a minute and, and, and listened to, the, to, to you worship God, hands raised, everybody's into it. So if Jesus said these words about this parable to the crowds that came to him who were genuinely committed in that day, what do you think he would say to people like you and me? When this crowd forms, probably something like this. So listen closely. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, and some was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a very simple picture, especially in the ancient world. Uh, here's a guy that used to carry a, a satchel on their shoulder. And a farmer, he reaches his hand into the satchel. It's got a bunch of seed in there, and he, and he flings it. Because this is a picture, a guy just flinging that he's walking down a path. In, in the ancient world, it's the way you traveled. They didn't always have you know, easy roads. And so uh, people, farmers would often lead, leave a path in the middle of their fields so the neighbors can get through without having to go all the way around. And so you could actually get places with these. You know that. There's little cut-throughs in your neighborhood and stuff like that. That's what they did. Cut-throughs to the middle of the farm. So this trodden-down path is one of the places where, where the seed falls. Obviously, it's probably the stuff that first comes out of his hand and sort of drops onto the ground. It's where people walk. And, if, you know, they're going to step on it, of course. It's not a good place for stuff to land. It doesn't really get in the soil much. Some other bits of it, though, go into what's called the rocky soil here. Guys, when, when it says rocky soil, some of, some of us, we think, ooh, big boulders in the soil. No, actually, the rocky soil is, uh, is where you have a layer of bedrock underneath the soil. So if you ever had a planter box or a putting green, they, you, you, know, you keep the, the distance between the top of the soil and, and the, the barrier at the bottom really short so the grass won't grow too high, right? You're probably not going to grow a fir tree in your planter box, although that'd be cool if you could. Because it just doesn't have enough room for the roots to go down. So that's, some of it falls on the soil where the roots are going to go kind of shallow. 
And some of it falls into, into ground that, uh, what do we call it, thistly? It's thistly soil. It's soil that uh, has the seed in it, yes, but also has the seed of a bunch of weeds in it. And as every single person knows, in the middle of the summer, uh, you go to your, out in your backyard and you're like, what a beautiful day, the, but the grass is turning brown and your whole backyard is green with weeds. And you're like, how are they living in the midst of this? Because greens are th- uh, weeds are thirsty and they suck all the water up from the, from the ground so that the grass won't grow. That's what happens with the thistly soil. The seed just can't, it starts, but it just cannot get enough moisture because the weeds are growing right, right next to it. And then there's the last one. It's, it's the good soil. It lands into, into the soil. And even though it has all the challenges of the hot sun coming up and it has the challenges maybe of thistles or whatever around, it perseveres through all the difficulty and in the end produces a crop. Before we go any further, can I, I need to ask you a very important farming question to all you farmers. Why does a farmer sow seed? So like, what I'm asking here is, uh, okay, when the farmer sows the seed, anywhere in the world, even today, when the farmer sows the seed, it goes into the ground and it starts to grow, right? Does the farmer, as soon as he sees the little green bits, start doing a little dance and run over to his wife and say, honey, plants, let's throw, throw a party. Well, no, of course they don't. When do they throw the party? At the harvest. So why does a sower sow a seed? For the harvest. Anybody who knows anything about farming anywhere in the world knows that's the case. In fact, it is a tragedy if you spend all the money and all the time to plant seed and it does not produce a harvest. It's a tragedy. You don't celebrate it. You don't put your stamp of approval on it. Farmers sow seed to yield a harvest. So at this point, the disciples are going, that is a great lesson in farming, Jesus. Thank you for that. What does it mean? So I'd love to go through the middle part of this passage, but we're going to skip forward to verse 11 so that we can just deal with Jesus' response to that question. First, the hard path. Now, the parable is this, verse 11. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Pretty straightforward, right? Lands lands on the ground, uh, never takes root. Birds of the air come, pick it up, take it away. These are, these are the people who, when the, when the gospel hits them, right? So the seed is the word of God. The seed is the message about Jesus. So this is when the gospel hits them, it just goes, it, they're just like, I don't care. It doesn't matter at all. Now, what's really interesting is in the modern church, when, when, when some, that happens to somebody, when we come forward and we say, okay, here's this great gospel, I'm gonna tell you about the gospel. Are you ready for the gospel? And they're like, yes. You tell them the gospel and they're like, meh. We're like, okay, maybe if I did a different method, maybe if I did it while I ran in place, maybe if I did it while I do a dance, maybe if I can 
couch the gospel in some sort of methodology, you will buy it. But in every case, with somebody who is the hard ground, it just bounces off. And yet, but the church, man, we, we love to create methods to try to get that gospel in there. And so we do. I came across this really fascinating uh, section of a book by a guy named C.S. Lovett. He was a, I think he was a vacuum salesperson in the 1950s. So he decided that he was gonna take his experience of vacuum selling and he was going to apply it to selling the gospel. Right? Vacuum suck, so does G. Wait, that doesn't. <laughs> Here's what he said when he was giving advice to people to come, you know, how, how it is that you get somebody to come to faith in Christ. Here it is what he said He said, You are in command. In much the same way as a great salesman, the trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. There is no middle ground as he moves with surety right up to the point of salvation. It is his conversation control that makes this possible. He knows exactly what to say each step of the way and can even anticipate his prospect's responses. He's able to keep the conversation focused on the main issue and prevent unrelated materials from being introduced. The controlled conversation technique, trademark, is something new in evangelism and represents a real breakthrough in soul winning. So here's what you do. Lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder or arm and with a semi-commanding tone of voice say to him, Bow your head with me. Note, do not look, him, look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you will see him first hesitate, and then as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation, and you will know when his heart yields. Bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. Right, see, if you just do it the right way, guys, they'll buy it. You knew that, right? There's a guy named Charles Finney, uh, History of the Church. Charles Finney was uh, kind of over, saw the, the Second Great Awakening in the United States. And one of the things that he would do, Finney's belief was, look, the only thing standing between you and salvation is your will. And so all I got to do is put some, some, like, create some sort of an environment or do something to overcome your will. So he would. Like, if I saw, you know, one of you here and I saw, oh, you're near salvation, I'd Come on down, sister, I'm going to put you on the preaching bench. And so there's a little bench he'd have in the front. I'm going to put you on the preaching bench. And then he would preach at them for like 40 minutes until they yielded. Until they yielded. Can you imagine? Just have them go at you. I yield. I yield. I just want to go home. Right? Yeah, but you just create, you create the environment. You do the new methods. You try to figure it all out. But guys, sometimes, according to Jesus, the seed just doesn't take root. So listen, uh, as it pertains to ministry and the approaches that I take on, on some things, I got to tell you, um, it's, I think we should contextualize the gospel with every ounce of our passion and ability. We, we should do as much as we can to speak the language of the culture, to be competent in the culture so that there are no barriers, no dumb barriers of language or attitude that get in the way for people coming to faith in Jesus. Amen. But 
It's a work of God. And sometimes, according to God, it just doesn't take root. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he, he deals with this challenge, you know, the people of Israel, are, he's having a hard time. Like, why are these people who are following uh, God and, you know, have a high view of him and in the old covenant, they're there, and they're Jewish people, and I'm preaching gospel to them and all these places, and there are more Gentiles coming than the Jews. What in the world do we do with this? I don't understand. Why unbelief? Paul's response to this is... Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We're not, I don't get down about it. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And look, even if our gospel is veiled, as it is to some, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Question, what is God's verdict going to be on the last day regarding those who persist in this kind of unbelief? Saved or not? Well, Jeff, come on, it's in the passage. It says it's that they won't believe and be saved. They're not saved, obviously. Right, here's the rocky soil then. Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while in a, in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among, let me stop there actually. I don't want to go into the thorns yet. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But then at a time of testing, they fall away. Um, Matthew 13, parallel passage in the Gospels, says actually that the hot sun comes up. So you get a picture in, 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 uh, in the Palestinian region today, I mean, it's hot. So hot sun comes up and it starts to beat down on the plant. And so the plant, if it's not deep enough in the ground, it's probably going to wilt and die. What is it? Who is it? Wait a minute. Who are you describing, Jesus? All right. Well, um, imagine a high school student that has been involved in the Christian church for a long, long time. They've been a part of the, the youth group. They grew up in the little kids' church. They know their way around a flannel graph board. They, they, they know the verses, man. Psalm 23. They got it. They get in high school, they're in the youth group, they got all sorts of friends who are part of the faith. Most of their time is spent even in, in church, but then they go off to a university and they hear some stuff that they never heard before. They take a, a professor, they start taking a class in philosophy, say, and all of a sudden the professor is really having a go at Christianity. He's having a really go, a real go at you know, what kinds of things that student believed for all of these years. And the student, for the first time in their life, right, they go from that philosophy class, they go to a biology class, and the first time in their life, they're like, oh my goodness, every one of these professors is trying to counteract and contradict what I've been taught a good chunk of my life. But the student at this point doesn't really have all the resources necessary in order to kind of respond. Because, you know, when you're in youth ministry, the best thing to do is to teach them the little parable and then give them pizza. Because you, you want them to come back. Right? And they like pizza. So you keep giving them pizza. 
But then month after month, year, year after year, that, that student in college starts taking more and more classes. That won't, they start questioning foundational beliefs of the, of the church. And eventually, by the time that they graduate, they have a blog online and they call themselves an ex-evangelical because I never really believed this stuff. And I was just pretending all of these years. And you and I read that and go, oh, that's terrible. What a tragedy. And it is a tragedy, but how'd they get there? Well, I'd say their roots didn't go deep enough. I'd say when the hot sun of persecution, different worldviews that are being pressed upon them in a setting where that worldview is privileged, they just didn't have what's necessary to stand up under the midst of that, uh, under the midst of that heat. I had a professor when I was doing my doctoral studies who was trying to describe what he called the dark night of the soul, which is a common experience for Christians where you feel like God has left you. It's not always fun and games, right? And he was trying to say that, look, the Christian life can really be described as an oscillation, right? A, a, a change between consolation, I'm on the high mountaintop, praise God, and desolation. Where are you, Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And then consolation, why did I ever doubt? To desolation, I don't think I can do this anymore. Consolation, desolation, consolation, desolation. Here's his big point. His point was, look, what keeps you in the desolation is how deep you go in the consolation. Or in other words, to put it in Jesus' mouth, how deep do your roots go? What saddens me, quite honestly, is in the modern church, what we're facing is, is a kind of gospel and a kind of preaching and a kind of ministry that is not actually helping people grow their roots deep. Instead, it's what sociologist Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. You can read all about that. It's been kind of a famous phrase. But basically, he interviewed a whole bunch of people from all different faith backgrounds, a bunch of kids, and he came to the conclusion that the real, on-the-ground religious tradition in churches regardless of their background, denomination, even religion. The real on the ground religion is what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. Basically, God is a divine butler. He comes when you ring. His job is to serve you, make sure that you're happy, right? You're doing okay, you're doing okay. Kind of like a puppy dog, but when he gets in your way, you can kick him out the door, right? You naughty dog, God, get rid of him. When he becomes inconvenient, I don't know, you know, to your sexual life or to what you want to do, you know, on a weekend here or there. It's kind of a mixture between divine butler and puppy dog. You do some stuff, moralistic. He's there to help you, therapeutic, but he's kind of off at the distance deism. And so a lot of people are trying to figure out what in the world is going on with what we call the nuns, all of these uh, young adults who were really committed to Jesus, maybe through high school or whatever, and now all of a sudden they've totally abandoned. Well, how do we solve a problem like exvangelicalism? And the answer that Christian Smith and many others have had is we need to stop moralistic therapeutic deism. Kenda Creasy Dean in her book Almost Christian put it really well. She said, uh, what if... The blasé religiosity of most teenagers is not the result of poor communication, but the result of excellent communication. 
of a watered-down gospel so devoid of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ that it might not be Christianity at all? What if the church models a way of life that asks not passionate surrender, but ho-hum assent? What if... What if we're preaching moral affirmation, a feel-better faith, and a hands-off God instead of the decisively involved, impossibly loving, radically sending God of Abraham and Mary who desired us enough to enter creation in Jesus Christ and whose spirit is active in the church and in the world today? If this is the case, if theological malpractice explains teenagers' half-hearted religious identities, then perhaps most young people who practice moralistic, therapeutic deism do so not because they reject Christianity, but because it's the only Christianity they know. Maybe the reason the nuns are there is because we preach to get them. You do realize that moralistic therapeutic deism, treating God like he's a divine butler or a puppy dog, it it really doesn't have any staying power. Because what do you do with the butler when he doesn't come when you ring? You get a new butler. What do you do do with the dog when he keeps messing up your carpet or doesn't want to offer you his little puppy eyes all the time? You give them to the neighbors. (laughs) What do you do with a God who doesn't do your bidding? So look, here's the thing that we need to be committed to as far as Christian people in churches these days. We need to be committed to telling people the hard things. Look, I'm, I gotta tell you something. I am not ashamed at any point of the Bible. Not, not one place in the Bible am I like, oh, we gotta hide that away in the back room so no one will see. Oh, I hope they don't find out that when the guy touched the ark, he died. I hope they don't find out that the Canaanites were... Killed by a holy God. I hope they don't find out that Ananias and Sapphira lied in church and then Peter, the apostle, struck him down. No, no, I I hope you hear all of that. I hope actually through the years of ministry together that we have a fully orbed, fully revealed picture of the God who is. So when Peter... What's really interesting is in, in Paul, actually, his last words, you know, he goes to these Ephesian elders and he, in Acts 20, and he's about to give his, I mean, this is like his final farewell to these. He's not going to see them again, ever. Dear brothers who he loves, and they're on a dock. And you picture that. They're on a dock, and the big sailboat's there, and, Peter, and Paul's like, all right, final elder meeting. Here's what he said to them. Acts 20, verse 25, he said, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. This is our last Dance, boys. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That's what defines deep ministry. That's what will grow roots. So let me ask you a question. Uh, On the last day, What will be the Lord's verdict on those who started for a little while and then faded away because their roots didn't go deep enough? Why does a farmer sow seed? 
Okay, thorny soil. Verse 14, as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and and their fruit does not mature. Can I just read that really quickly? The cares, the riches, and pleasures of life. The cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Riches and pleasures. You heard the riches, didn't you? Well, it starts out really well. He throws the seed. It starts out pretty well. But again, it's competing for water in the soil. And weeds are thirsty, baby. And the more weeds you have around the, the seed, the less water the seed will get. What does that look like? Okay, so there's this guy. He's a really important guy. He is a ruler of some sort, and he comes to Jesus at one point, and he's like, okay, Jesus, I've heard you being this really important guy, and you've talk, talked a lot about salvation, so what do, is it, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, why don't you keep the commandments, and you'll be saved? And this guy's response is, um, yeah, I've done all that, right? Those commandments, piece of cake. Did all of them. And then Jesus, honestly, zeroes in on the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. And he says to the guy, okay, okay, okay. I see you're a really rich guy. Why don't you go take all of your uh, wealth. I want you to sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. In other words, let's put your commitment to the first commandment to the test. Are you going to have a God before me? Is it gonna, your money, are you going to put your money before me? He walks away sad because he's very wealthy. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Here's a guy who's got a heart to, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but there's, there, the, the richest weed is so hungry that when it comes down to choosing between Jesus and the wealth, man, the wealth wins. You don't realize, though, how much the wealth provides for me. You guys know that, right? There's so much comfort and joy. How can I trust that Jesus is going to provide me that kind of comfort and joy? I, cho- I choose my wealth. Do you know, as I think back to all the people I know who have fallen away from the faith or walked away from Jesus, I come, have come to this very simple conclusion that almost in every case, the person I've been talking to has, has left because they found something they love more than him. And that thing, in many cases, was not a dangerous thing to begin with. They, they, they just got a lot of money. And the next thing you know, they got more money, and then they got more money, and eventually they had so much money that when the economy turned and everything was going haywire and they were losing all this money that they got, they turned to God and say, what are you doing? I'm not gonna follow you if you can't provide for me like I want. Or somebody who's so committed to this relationship and I need to have a, a, a husband, I need to have a wife and they end up you know, getting involved or maybe they get, they get you know, uh, they break up on the altar or whatever. I'm not gonna follow you if you're not gonna provide for me. The only thing I want, I sat across a table at Subway with a dear sister who was in a leadership development class of mine in New Zealand and she said that to me, look, I've met a guy, I get it, he's not a Christian, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore because he's never provided for me the one thing I wanted. 
wait a minute, the one thing you wanted wasn't Jesus? Hmm. Look, cares, riches, and pleasures are not bad things. They're not. But listen, listen, they're very dangerous. They're like your Rottweiler, right? Don't pet my Rottweiler. No, I don't want to pet your Rottweiler. The reason they're dangerous is they have potential to choke, honestly, to choke out your face. So listen, I'm going to commit something to you even at the very front end here, all right? I promised you that I will not be a lifeguard who sits on the lifeguard sand and can see how wonderful time you're having swimming but doesn't warn you about the riptide. It's a lousy lifeguard who says, swimming's great, guys. It's awesome. Have fun swimming. Have fun with all the riches and cares and pleasures of the life. But you guys do know there's riptide. And if you're not careful... Away you go. So, um, question. On the last day, when somebody who, whose faith got choked out by the weeds, when they stand before God, what will be God's verdict on them? Will he welcome them into eternal commendation? Why does a farmer sow seed? And then the last one. You know what the point of this parable? We, could, we didn't need to take all this time. The point of this parable is be the fourth soil. Okay? Why didn't you say that? Oh my goodness, ridiculous, right? <laughs> As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, listen to what they do. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart and they bear fruit with patience. Whenever I read that passage, my mind immediately goes back to a story that I heard from another pastor years ago. It was actually printed in the New York Times in 1983, a long time ago, right? But he told this story because he had kept it in his file for a long time. Here's how it goes. He said, uh, on a short commuter flight, in the northeastern part of the United States, Henry Dempsey, the pilot, heard an unusual noise near the rear of the small aircraft. He turned the controls over to his co-pilot and went back to check it out. And as he reached the tail section, the plane hit an air pocket and Dempsey was tossed against the rear door. And he, he quickly discovered the source of the mysterious noise. The rear door had not been properly latched prior to takeoff. And it flew open. And he was instantly, guys, he was sucked out of the jet. The co-pilot, seeing the red light that indicated an open door, he radioed to the nearest airport, requesting permission to make an emergency landing. He reported that the pilot had fallen out of the plane, and he requested a helicopter search of that area of the ocean. After the plane landed, they found Henry Dempsey. He was holding onto the outdoor ladder of the aircraft. Somehow, he had caught the ladder, held on for 10 minutes as the plane traveled 200 miles an hour in an altitude of 4,200 feet. And then, when the plane landed, he kept his head from hitting the runway, which is only 15 inches away. It, it took airport personnel several minutes to pry Dempsey's fingers from the ladder. Right? That kind of holding fast. That kind of, I, God, I do not care what happens, I'm going. 
I'm sticking around, baby. So what does that mean? I mean, fun story. What does that mean in real terms? I had these dear friends in my, in my church in New Zealand years ago, and um, I found out that one of their parts of their story was that they had a little, they had a little baby boy that, was, that died right when he was born. I asked them to explain to me what that was like, and they started to describe, well, the hardest part for me, said the guy, was that when they brought the, the casket out, it was that big. He said, I, I'd never seen a casket that small. I mean, it's, that was when it hit me that my son was dead. Now, being a pastor, I've heard that story a lot from lots of different people in different various versions, different age of the child, different relationship to the loved one. So I ask the question that I, I'm interested in. I said to him, look, um, most of the people I know give up after that happens. I mean, they just stop following Jesus and yet here you are, you're involved in the life of this church and you've been here for a while and, and you're serving faithfully. Why? Why, why didn't you leave? He said, leave? Why would I turn away from Jesus? He's, he's all that really matters. Look, by God's grace, the goal of my ministry is to produce that kind of follower. I promise you something. I will give every ounce of blood and sweat and tears to see that you live and die happy in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for my, my new friends and I'm thankful, Father, that in your kind providence you have brought us together. We don't pretend, Father, none of us pretend that there will not be moments of desolation Ahead, we know that that's, that's just the way it goes. Fallen world, Lord. But we also know, Father, that you are always our consolation. And I pray, Father, that the ministry of this church in the days ahead will be so robust, so profound, so soul-enriching and edifying that the people of Chicago, the Christians in Chicago especially, will have their roots grow deep. Father, they will stand the test of the sun, stand the test of the weeds, and they will continue to their very last day. We pray not for our, for our glory, Father. No, nobody's gonna come up to us at the end and say to us, wow, you're really good at holding on. No, they're gonna come up and say, you're really good at holding them. And so it's to you. We give our praise from you and through you and to you are all things. We pray in Jesus' name.